0: Hey, humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey, Human podcast. This is episode 313, and I had a conversation with Sarah Schiller. She's the co-founder of SLUMU Institute, co-founder of a Wooster Collective, and she's a co-caretaker of a couple disabled family members, including her daughter, who has Angelman syndrome, and her husband who had two debilitating strokes. And a documentary actually was made about him called No Bone Scars of Survival. Highly recommend. It's really great. She's also a management consultant for Fortune 100 Companies, a digital brand strategist. She has spent hours upon hours in boardrooms. She has really kicked ass in All things visual and her artistic sense and flair has gone with her every step of the way. Uh, If you've never heard of the Wooster Collective, I highly recommend checking that out. Um, There's a, a lot in, well, there's a good handful of what that is in the No Bone documentary. But definitely, you know, dig in a little deeper. I'll definitely put stuff on the links page about all of that so you can check it out further the slu mu institute celebrates quote joy through sensory play their mission is to embrace the power of satisfying through vivid color the sense of scent tactile compounds and captivating and visual sounds unquote launched in October of 2019. It's in a 1,200-square-foot interactive experiential space in New York, uh, and it's handcrafted artisanal slime. I mean, I never thought I would say those words together, but here we are. It it seems like a really cool—I'm excited to visit this place. It sounds so cool. Uh, They're going to be opening in other cities this year and expanding, and it's just really— fantastic so it's it's fun to hear her talk about that as well. Uh, we went all over the place her love of art and music and New York, and what it was like to find out that her child had a disability, and then also how her life adjusted when her husband uh the love of her life had two strokes, and the her whole world shifted and changed uh It's a really fascinating conversation. And I think you're going to enjoy this. I know I did. Sarah is a fighter and a trooper and a brilliant mind and really one of those people that when life throws a curve, she's she's right in there and she's shifting and, and maneuvering and figuring it out. So uh, looking forward to you hearing this one. Hey Human podcast can be found on social media on Facebook and Instagram. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, can be found on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. If you go to heyhumanpodcast.com, you'll find a bunch of stuff. There's a links page. Every episode gets its own pile of links to make your life easier. Um, My guests, anything we talk about, not everything, but you know, a lot of the stuff will end up there on that links page so that you can do a deep dive without having to go further than one place. And also on the website, you will find the store. Great way to support Hey Human is to get merch, t-shirts, book bags, pencil cases, hats, that kind of thing is is really, it's a great company. Uh, they make wonderful products. And I, I think you'll like what you get on there. Rate and review and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Another great way to support and get the word out. Uh, You can contribute to the show. Helps keep it ad-free, and I really appreciate it. Do that with the contribute button there on heyhumanpodcast.com. If you want to sign up for the mailing list, go to susanruth.com. You'll also find a whole bunch of stuff there about art and music that I do, as well as Uh, interviews and things that I've done and all sorts of whatever it is I'm working on in the moment if you're into music check out my music on all the places you get music Spotify Amazon iTunes I don't know all the places my most recent album uh all I ever wanted was everything check that out and let me know what you think Go to my YouTube channel, Official Susan Ruth, and check out videos there and subscribe. Also, a really great way to support is subscriptions because apparently once you hit a thousand subscriptions, you actually get some of the ad revenue that YouTube forces you to have. So that's interesting and helpful. (laughs) What else? Oh, uh, if you are wondering where older episodes are on iTunes, apparently they only show... 300 at a time. So, as I've been saying every episode, if you want to listen to some of the older stuff that happened pre 300th episode, (laughs) 312th, 313th episode, uh, go back and check it out on heyhumanpodcast.com. They're all on there. So, you can listen to them there. Fear not, they do exist. They haven't been purged. Let's get into the show. Thank you for listening. Be well, stay safe, be kind take care of each other. Here we go. Sarah Schiller, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, Thank you to my cousin who introduced us. (laughs) Small country, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Small world, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Yours and Mark's story is extraordinary. Uh, I watched the documentary No Bone, Scars of Survival. Excellent. Moving inspirational I mean I'm sure you've heard all those words before to describe but I was standing there watching and I kept thinking like you know every time I think to myself I can't do something I should remember this moment of how I feel right now.
1: Yes there's so many layers of uh, complication uh, that sort of surround my life um, which we can get into but when when Mark had he actually had two strokes. Uh, I say I learned two things coming out of like that moment of time. And, um, the first is that I'm an optimist. I I didn't know this about myself, but I actually just wake up thinking things are going to be good and, and it's all going to work out. And like, it's, it's going to be a good day. Um, and I also found out that I have infinite patience (laughs) and, uh, Neither of those traits I would have ever said I wanted to have, <laughs> but ended up having, and I think it's helped carry me on this journey with both Mark, my husband and Samantha, who we call Sammy, my daughter, uh, which have been these really interesting, you know, pathways to be on. yeah.
0: yeah. well let's get into you a little bit. Where are you from originally? How did you grow up? yeah, i'm I'm
1: from Maine originally a Winterport, Maine, a town of 2,000 people. Uh and the only Winterport in the US. So, I grew up in what I would say a very traditional household. I have the middle of three. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Parents were were hard both worked. Um my dad was a math professor, my mom did executive search and um, they divorced when I was 15 and I ended up living with my dad, which is probably one of the more unusual things back in the seventies for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we you know, we had a um, really sort of safe countryside living in a sense, like there were no locks in the doors, neighbors would come over and drop off things. So you could get on your bike and just ride out uh, a lot of freedom. But I was I was really attracted to coming to New York City and have lived here for a little under 30 years, and I am addicted to the city and feel like I either need to be in New York City, in, in the, the community that I have here, or off the grid in May, in rural Maine. I can't imagine being anywhere in the middle, so you'll, mm. you
0: will never find me in suburbia. <laughs> and you live in city proper, right, in New York? I do. I
1: I live in Soho, actually. So I'm I'm lucky.
0: That is very lucky. Yeah. I have uh, my other cousins live in the East Village. Yes. Yeah. 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 Not not uh, not the one that, you know, but the ones you don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. (laughs) How did you come to meet Mark? So I met
1: Mark at the office. Um, I met him at the water cooler and we found out that we had a passion for music he had worked at, at house of blues he was one of the pioneers of uh streaming live music over the internet so one of the first people to ever do that and i met him at at&t that uh labs had created music compression technology and he was one of the first people to create a digital download of a song, which I think is so funny today, but in 1997, that was a big deal. You mean it's all his fault. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, and, and one of the things that attracted me to Mark is he's a fearless pioneer has done so many things that had never been done before and just would bravely, uh, go in and, and disrupt and um, create change. But the thing that I think nailed it for me was on our second date, uh, he took me to meet the Dalai Lama because he was broadcasting the Dalai Lama live over the internet for the first time as a like a public service project. And he's like, I just want the vo- his voice to get into China so the Chinese can actually hear him speak and no one can shut it down. And uh, that's a for me, that was a very uh very sexy moment yes, yeah
0: <laughs> very sexy, yeah <laughs> then it was love in that moment.
1: <laughs> it was, and I think
0: what Mark and I didn't know is and the
1: the film I think really represented this well is we were embarking on a journey of uh true love and love that create that we were bigger uh, together than what we could do apart. And that really came to be around our passion for street art. So we lived in Soho and had a puppy and we were walking the dog and started to realize that underneath our feet and what had been there for years was this massive movement around street art. So not just graffiti, but people coming in and welding, um, sculptures onto onto the sides of buildings onto the street furniture people doing stencils and wheat paste and when we started to tap into the quality of the work and the immense intellectual creativity behind it we we fell in love with street art and that really for the next 15 years propelled us as a couple to do things as a pure passion project i always say some people as couples like play golf or tennis, Mark and I did street art, and that was really the core of of how we spent our free time.
0: And you had the the Wooster Collective. And you were cataloging everything that you were finding with cameras and putting them on a massive website. Yeah. So
1: the site became massive. I say people voted with their with their mouse uh, by clicking. The it was a time when street art was considered vandalism, but of, you know, young people around the world wanted more and they understood what Street art stood for, which was um, freedom of speech, First, Men- First Amendment rights, for sure, um, a backlash against the corporatization of the public square, which is just so much advertising in your face and the fact that your pub- your visual um, sight of line could be sold right? You didn't have any control over this. So, so many of these fundamental beliefs uh, started being adopted by this set of artists who risked being arrested to go put their art up. And that, the fact that it was vandalism, not, not murals, not these things with permission, but really true acts of illegal uh, recapture of public space captured us. And Um, this was a time when there were, there was no Instagram blogs were just starting. So we had one of the first blogs and we would put up pictures that we took, but we started to get emails from around the world. And the only way these artists were really sharing their work was by sending it to us and having us put it up because there wasn't a way for them to identify or connect with each other online. And we ended up growing WoosterCollective.com to be like one of the top 100 blogs in the world. We were the only blog without advertising, which really fit the, the spirit of what we were tapping into mm-hmm. and uh, allowed us to do some monumental projects with artists like Banksy, where we were really the mouthpiece for the work that they were doing. So we, Mark and I are business people. This was for fun. And I say that we probably were really poised to talk about the artists and their motivations even better than they were because they were anonymous and doing illegal work. So we could go out and do interviews and uh, be like a public face for this art movement, even though we were not art history majors and we didn't really know anything about art, but we fell in love and tapped into the artists and and what they stood for.
0: I was curious when watching the documentary as you're moving through the streets of new york and it's becoming its own type of gallery for you and for anyone who isn't busy you know staring at their phones uh that i i wondered if you were approached by any of the powers that be to try and find out who painted that who did that and force you into force your hand into ratting people out
1: Yeah, we, we were never, um, approached by, by the legal authorities, but we were always really aware that, that they could come and get the computer and they would have a lot of people's identities. And we, we tried really hard to not capture things that we thought would help the authorities in case that happened, like picture photos of people and things like that. Um, and, and, I think for a while, we had a lot of friends get arrested and we they would sometimes call us and we would call the First Amendment lawyer and help them work the system, especially if they were
0: international, to to get them out, mm. out of jail. So. And in other countries, that type of art is punishable by death. It's important to note. Yes, it's punishable by death. And then
1: in some countries uh, throughout the years, there's been this Uh, they've embraced it. Like Berlin went through a big moment where they actually embraced it. It was beautiful, beautifying, decaying spaces. Um, You saw that in Barcelona. So there's been these wonderful, Melbourne had the same thing where the cities would almost allow it in order to make themselves really attractive. I tell the story that at the New York City started to lock down and, and really they think they have a forty-person anti-graffiti squad, and they're re- you know really arresting people a lot. And um, we got a call from Condé Nast Traveler saying uh, we we need a list of the top ten places to find street art. And I was like, you know, it's really come full circle when uh, you know the the media is is wanting to tap into this illegal art in order to promote a city, and almost like the city needs the art to attract visitors.
0: Yeah. It's funny it's also irritating isn't it to think that suddenly it's cool and enough to be in a and to be in, in something the city is like oh yeah come look at our graffiti <laughs> when mm-hmm. before they're like who is it let's arrest them yeah when somebody like Ban- Banksy is so in the know and then the zeitgeist and for somebody like you and for somebody like Mark who have seen so many artists, great artists come before doing the same thing. Was that, did that add fuel to the fire of of getting more recognition for those who were living in shadow? It's interesting because I talk to people about street art, for example, and they know Banksy and Banksy is okay because Banksy is quote unquote, an artist. And then they look at something else that they don't deem worthy because it doesn't have the name Banksy attached to it. And that's, not cool or not okay, or that's graffiti, or that's destruction of property. And I feel like with what you two did was to try and shine bigger lights to to show that no it's all it's all part of this great uh work of art, but it must have been in far sort of an uphill battle trying to convince people in some cases that just because you're not banksy doesn't mean you're not worthy of a wall or a corner or a cracked sidewalk, right well and I, and i think importantly that's why
1: you could steal it if you wanted it right mm-hmm. you didn't have to get permission but uh, and it, and it's kind of funny that your podcast is named hey human because one of the things that we always talked about is that illegal art and and graf- from graffiti from all, for all ends right banksy through to to just a regular tag that it it sh- makes a city human it shows that there are people here it is a vibrant living part of a city and the minute you start whitewashing and there is no graffiti no street art it really takes away some of the humanity yeah and we would so we would argue you need this you actually want this you might not notice the tags or know what they mean but but if you want to live in New York City that's kind of what you want you want that energy and the other thing we used to talk about a lot that people have a really hard time with the gray area. This is not black or white. This is so gray. Like, is it okay to stencil a building that's falling down and the landlord doesn't take care of it? Is it okay to stencil a bank that can spend the money to have someone go out and, and um, you know, clean it up? And and all of that, like the, the street artist's, thought about all of these things when they put their their pieces mm-hmm. they thought about architecture they thought about who owned the building the condition of the building and it, it was a real big gray area that you had to be feel good about getting right in the middle of the mushiness of it
0: well I think about art in general there are of course anytime I paint something and then send it off to be with whomever it's going to to rest with I think well I have created this thing Sort of, I always feel like it's a conduit situation, but, and now I'm sending it off to the world and I have no control over it. They could light it on fire for all I know. And that's their choice. That's how, if they feel like they want to experience that piece that way, so be it. And I think of it when, when somebody is tagging the side of a building or, uh, or creating art somewhere or somehow in this way, in this, you know, renegade type of way that they must really be in touch with that impermanence they, because they don't know what's going to happen to it next. They, exactly. And the artists, when you really
1: get into this topic with them, they'll, they'll say a couple of things. Once one, that's a performance piece. So they put it up and the act of putting it up is the piece because it doesn't last mm. that they'll, they, you know, they've walked away from a piece and went around the corner and came back and the the some someone in the building ripped it down and just teared it to shreds and left it in a pile on the on the sidewalk and you have to be really able to live with that especially if you put hours and hours into the piece. Then you have artists like Swoon who she had this amazing opening at Deitch Gallery, this wonderful gallery in, in New York City. And the pieces that were in the show, she took copies of them uh, and we pasted them up outside in the alley so everyone could have it and take a photo of it and it could live publicly. And I just, I love that, um, you know, that that grit and that, uh, you know, putting, challenging the system, right?
0: Hmm. Is there a code of ethics too that they live by in that, say, you have a historic building or something that isn't crumbling and falling down, but a historic building where, where it in and of itself is art. Is that, is there sort of an unspoken rule? Oh, we're not going to use the word desecrate. Cause that's, yep. I think what yep. the public would call it. Um, is there a rule against that or is it no holds bar?
1: So for street artists, uh, for sure, they would, they, they normally wouldn't tag a building that's uh, historic or a building that's being taken care of and maintained, uh, they don't go over each other's work so there's a that principle you you in fact add to it or you might make a piece that speaks to work that's already up there uh, but graffiti artists who we got to know many along the way they have a different code because they're they're writing their name for a different reason they want to be heard uh, they feel like they don't have a voice and they're trying to make a statement in a different way and that Uh, So they will do, they'll, they're more likely to tag something that's not, that we might consider uh, valuable in, in its whole form.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You get married, you begin a life with Mark and you have a baby and uh, Sammy is born and she is born totally perfect. As far as you're concerned, I'm cleaning this from the documentary, obviously. Can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know Mark and I lived a, a a really amazing life. We were traveling the world, we were dealing with street art, we were doing all these amazing projects and uh, decided to have a child. Samantha to us looked perfect. She was a a redhead with these blue eyes and super super happy child and at one point the doctor said, "Well, she's not rolling over. You should go have her checked out." And you know, over the next two years we we basically uncovered that she has a rare genetic syndrome called Angelman syndrome. and the a symptom of the syndrome is happiness. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, you know, it's sort of like she she I always say she's in the one percent, so she can't feed herself, she can't speak, she can't get dressed, she can't cook or go to the bathroom or write or do sort of... She can't do anything, and when she gets tested, it's it's so depressing. Uh, but she, they'll say like she's at a one month old or a two month old level or something that's beyond ridiculous. Because she dances and she laughs and she makes jokes and she has friends and she can find uh, K-pop music on your you know YouTube in ten minutes. So. She has so much, but from how we look at the world, she has so little. And for Mark and I, it was a humbling, humbling experience to uh, have a lot as individuals and as a couple. And really as every parent does, you expect you're going to have a child that at a minimum can speak and, and feed themselves. Right. So we, our world was, was transformed and crushed, and we slowly built that up over five, six, seven years, and uh, Mark had a great perspective on her, which was um, she, she deserved dignity, and that we, we, part of what we were to do is to cr- help her, enable her, and create an environments where she could experience that dignity. And that's really stayed with me, both with her and now with what's happened with him is to create environments where they have dignity.
0: How old is Sammy now?
1: She's now 14. Wow. Yes. Time flies. It's uh, time flies. She on Saturday slept in in until about 1130 in the morning. And I said, yep, that's a teenager.
0: (laughs) I can appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) The documentary was made quite a few years ago, or at least the, I'm sorry, that the footage was made quite from when she was little. And I noticed she was very tactile with Mark and with the things around her. She, she, it was experiencing the world. It seemed to me through touch, which I thought was really fascinating.
1: Yeah. I, I can't wait to, to get in her brain one day and understand I say she processes things differently than we do. Um, so she, she, she feels things, but she also hearing and seeing she can't see more than three or four feet in front of her, but you can drop her into her playground and she can totally go around. So she, she must have some map of, of the world and all of us in a different way, mm-hmm. kind of like, right. People who are blind have, have great hearing and other things like that. Um, but she's. She's an incredible human being, and I I like to say that she's changed lives at at 14 when most of us go our whole life without changing anyone's life, Mm. and she has that strong presence and power, and she captivates people.
0: It seemed to me when I was watching the film that there was a, a depth to her eyes that now, for somebody that can't really communicate the, the normal way, quote unquote, it just seemed to me that she was taking in things and there was a lot of there was just a lot going on in her eyes. To me, an interesting parallel, because I'm watching Sammy com- communicate a lot of emotion through her eyes. And you said that that people with the syndrome are extra happy, but there it was more than happiness. It was. There was something deeper than that. And then when she was being so tactile, and I thought, what an interesting parallel to then watching Mark as he was trying to process what was going on with him. And probably, I mean, clearly Mark is an extraordinarily bright human being. To be in in a way trapped without being able to articulate and to see that frustration. I just thought, wow, what an interesting parallel, how similar that is. It's so similar. and and all of
1: everything I learned from being Sammy's mom, I was able to put into play when Mark had a stroke and through his ongoing recovery, uh, and the um, that frustration of not being able to communicate because communication is one of the key things that makes us human and allows you to participate in in your tribe and society and everything. When you lose that or you don't ever have it, like in Sammy's case, you are eternally frustrated. And we'll see. There's a lot of uh, scientific research going on in gene therapy for Angelman syndrome. There's a large number of companies that have drugs and and treatments that are in clinical trials. So she may have one of the first syndromes that's I don't want to say cured, but uh, the symptoms significantly resolved uh, so that we will be able to un- to tap into her and find out what she's been thinking and feeling. Yeah. How incredible is that? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be pretty cool.
0: Along came uh, Charlie second. Mm-hmm. Did she come along after the stroke or before the stroke that Mark had?
1: So before, before the stroke and Charlie, Charlie is, um, you know, all, all signs ahead. So she's typical developing, um, one of the things about me and Mark, but, uh, I have a lot of dark humor. So I say like, you know, so far she seems typical, um, and she has known really no other world except for one which her sister and her father don't don't speak and are disabled and her level of empathy is off the charts i think back to mark and i we never met a disabled person or hung out with one until we gave birth to one so we woke up and you know entered this whole world you know kids were Kids were rem- weren't even in our schools, and if you had any learning development issues, you were in another classroom. So mm-hmm. we didn't even have people with dyslexia or some of the more common, you know, relatively easy to solve challenges compared to something that Samantha and Mark have. We didn't have any people like that in our life. So Charlie is born with that and, and has that from the start, this uh, exposure and, and deep love for alternative
0: viewpoints. And she doesn't see, at least again, I can only glean of the children through this documentary that I watched. But firstly, that one moment when Charlie's talking about how she felt the impact of the of her father and the documentary was going to have on the world. Uh, she sounded like she was 30. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> she tends to she does tend to sound like she's 30. <laughs> it's
1: like, geez, Louise, this kid, holy moly. Right. Well, and she's grown up in a household with a lot of adults. So yeah. Um, it, when, when Mark had his stroke, I tried to find a support group. I have a support group for, for the last 13 years, actually, around Samantha, um, but for wives of young stroke victims, most stroke victims are in their 70s or 80s. They aren't 50 when they have a stroke. And uh, looked out out there, there are very very few fifty year old stroke victims. And the other wives are, that I found are usually military wives, and their husbands had um, had had an accident or something happened while they were on duty, and they're disabled. And they they are leading very different li- uh, life from what Mark and I had, so to speak, living in Soho in New York City. Um, And in a sense, they they have a lot of support. They oftentimes have moms and grandparents and just a community of aunts and uncles, right? Supporting the family. Mark and I don't have any support. So I'm bringing in a large team into the house to help me take care. Like both Samantha and Mark need full-time care. Uh, So there's an incredible lack of privacy, which is one issue (laughs) and a, and a lot of judging that goes on, but the, wait, wait, what do you mean by that? The judging? I think as a, as especially as a mom, but also as a wife society really, or everyone has an opinion on how you should do things right from how much iPad time your kid should get to what you should be feeding them. Uh, Charlie can be really difficult if she wants to go outside in 30 degree weather without a coat. That's her problem. She'll learn better next time. Like that's how I parent. But when you have other moms in the house, a lot of other moms in the house who are caretaking, you know, you're, you're getting that level of you're being judged almost on a daily basis. And, you know, I have a great team and I love having them. And, but there's times I think people don't really realize what, uh what it's what what comes with having someone support you which is the this level of being human and saying like i don't think what you're doing is right Mm -hmm.
0: and it's that's hard really also little kids love to be out in the cold i used to run around the snow and bare feet so i get it i don't know what it is about little kids they're never cold it's insane
1: they're never cold they're the 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 they're engines of heat
0: they are there's little little hot boxes. Um, yeah. With all that care, I mean, imagine the financial devastation that could cause. How in the world did you, as a family, deal with that?
1: Or well, we're still dealing with it seven years later. Yeah. The uh, you know, the, the there has been a double whammy. There's the cost of taking care of everyone. And it's not just feeding and you know clothing. It's speech therapy, PT, OT. It's all of this other stuff that you're trying to do to maximize someone's ability in the world. And that was coupled with the fact that I wasn't working, so I didn't have an income either. And uh, I'm probably challenged by the fact that I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I had a company called Meat Hospitality, and Mark and I had started that business in 2008, but it wasn't a flourishing, money-making, you know, huge success. And I tried growing that business after Mark's stroke. It, it really sputtered along. It had good moments and bad moments, but never really provided me with the income that I needed to overcome all of these other costs. Uh, Mark does have disability insurance, so that has saved us. In fact, I recommend that highly to everyone to get if you have a family. Um, but the pressure pressure financially has been enormous and a complete drain. And in, in my uh, serial entrepreneurial way of dealing with this, uh, four years ago, One of my very good friends and someone who supported me all through Mark Stroke, uh, she came to me and asked me if I would do a side project with her around the arts. We were both friends around the arts. And we started looking at this idea of doing a pop-up for like three or four weeks with art and slime. And I started looking at the financial model and we both fell in love with slime as a real healing entity. Um, what is slime? You mean like slime? I mean, slime that's made out of glue and activator Okay. stretchy slime. And as, as we say, this isn't the slime of your childhood, uh, in 2016, 17 slime exploded and the, the quality and texture and playfulness of it exploded at the same time. And there's a whole universe of adult slimers out there. And my now business partner, Karen, tapped into Slime because she had her own personal tragedy and Slime really helped her heal. So she brought Slime to me. I started playing with Slime with my two girls and we realized that we wanted to spread this joy of Slime uh, everywhere. So we started, uh, we raised some money really in a year. We launched something called SLUMU Institute. SLUMU is the slime name for slime, where there was a trend on the internet in the slime community to replace the vowels of your name with double O's. So you'd be Susun, I'm Suru. And so slime becomes SLUMU. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So we opened up in October, 2019 an 8000 square foot playground around slime that we had intended to just be open for 6 months. We had 90,000 people come through and 4 months later we were shut down because of covid. Oh, you COVID. So we were we were on the cusp of emerging from financial uh <laughs> despair to 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 being shut down. And at that point, really, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go work for American express or something, right? They're, they're, the whole world shut down, as we all know. And we, we just were both really hard workers. We just worked our way through the pandemic to emerge in, uh, the fall of 2021 with, uh, a series A round of money that we've raised to help us grow. We signed a five-year lease for New York City. We signed a lease for Chicago. We signed a lease for Atlanta. We're working on Denver. So we've taken this this business that was a six-month pop-up and hopefully really transitioned it into a company and a company that spreads joy and happiness and for me I have a corporate background and this is really fulfilling. It's fulfilling for me as a mom to be able to be working in something that I'm really proud of and that I think my girls can be proud of. And the you know giving my my girls the view that you can live through all of this and and come out and do really cool fun things. Mm-hmm. You you can make your own destiny. It's been an amazing um journey, just like trying to raise money. We, you know, people would call us my, I'm 51, my partner's 50, um, mature entrepreneurs. (laughs) I love it. You're just getting started. It's exactly, it's kind of funny. It's like, they're like, we'd like to invest in mature entrepreneurs. I'm like, okay, we can, we can go with that. (laughs) That's great. And we have so many fun things we're working on. We just finished the manuscript for a children's book. We have a an incredible character. Our Slumu character is non-binary because slime is not a liquid or a solid, and so we have a whole story
0: around Slumu, and it feels really good. You know, it. I can't help but think as again as I'm watching this documentary, I'm standing there and I'm just thinking, ah, you know, where would how would I be in this situation? And then when I have my little aches and pains or whines, you know, uh, to realize that through these tragedies, you just don't know what's going to grow. It's like the Hawthorne tree, you know? Yes. Yes.
1: That's, that's uh, a little bit of, of this sort of life journey, right? Which is you actually don't know what's going to happen when you wake up in the morning and you can pretty much be guaranteed somewhere along your journey that some bad things are going to happen, And it's how you deal with them. It's how you view the world and approach it. And I always say, I I probably could have been crouched in the corner in the fetal position crying, or I could get up and start moving forward.
0: I got the idea that before Mark had his strokes, that you two were very much like that anyway. I mean, that's just your personalities. And I think because of that, Again, I don't know you both personally, but from what I gleaned, that Mark was on the precipice of death, and he somehow—I mean, the love and the the contact and the surrounding and the and the hard work—but that he had to have that spirit in him to keep going. Yes, yeah.
1: the The only challenges, and this is a like a little known fact about stroke victims, is when he came out the other side, his personality really had changed. And so he he isn't the man that I married and fell in love with uh, any longer. Uh, a lot of the traits are gone. and and a lot of the traits are still there. Like he made a documentary film about himself. Like who wakes up in the morning and yeah. does that, especially yeah. if you can't speak or or type or do all these things. But there's, there's a lot that's, that is gone. And I've had to go through the process of mourning that almost as if he died. And I, I haven't had someone that close to me die. So I don't want to go there, but it's, he, much of him is gone. Um, and the, as I, as I personally look forward and say, okay, you know, how, I'm on this journey. I'm on a journey with Samantha. I'm on a journey with Mark where we're, we're uh, incredibly connected for the rest of our lives. Right. But on my own journey, then what does that mean for me? Like, how do I find love again? How do I connect with another person? How does, how do I wake up and you know make that step forward and, and feel good about, um myself as a yeah, I
0: mean you're a young, beautiful woman who deserves intimacy and love and sex and all that stuff. so that is it yeah. and and that's a huge question
1: and and it's one that um you know, i there is no textbook for that's the other thing I was searching for is someone else who had gone down this path and could give me uh signals and it's it doesn't really exist out there. So for me trying to figure out how do I define family or how does it get redefined and um, personally finding someone who wants the same things that I do and, and, and my, and wants my situation, which is naturally more complicated, I guess, than most people's.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like uh, I'm a single mother who with a child says, take me, take my kid. Now it's like, take me, you're a, take, me take my entire family, including my husband. Too. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, right. it's a big, so. it's a big deal, but it's not insurmountable. No,
1: Nothing. no. And I mean, I've had the ability to make strong relationships. So I have actually moved on and, you know, found love and found intimacy and companionship and all those things that have, you know, helped me even heal through all of this
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and having someone, I think with what I've said in the very beginning, that level of patience, right. That was patient enough to let me deal and figure these things out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My, my eldest brother, Matthew had a massive stroke, just destroyed his uh, frontal lobe and his personality completely different. He was in a coma for three weeks. And I remember saying to my dad, I wonder if he's, he was not a very nice person. If he's listening, you were kind of an asshole, but anyway, he was, you know, he's very bright guy, but just in insufferable. And when he was in his coma, I said to my dad, I wonder if when he comes out, he's going to be a nicer person. And he was by huge amounts, remembered nothing of his life really, you know, that short term. Like, I recognize a lot of those things that Mark went through because oh. my brother went through that stuff. And uh, so, yeah, they really become totally different people for better yeah. or for worse, but just different. And is, is, is he able to live independently, your brother? He ended up falling in love with one of his caregivers. They got married. and uh, he relearned to walk and talk. Uh, He has no short-term memory, so he can't work, anything like that. Uh, He's very much has the personality of a 12-year-old boy now. Interesting. The
1: the short-term memory loss is a really fascinating and uh, difficult thing, and I think until you're with someone who's experiencing that, it's hard to explain it to people mm-hmm. that uh, just they don't even know how to get through a day. They don't remember that they have an appointment or that, they're, that you said you were going here and you walk out the door and they're like, where are you going? You're like, I just told you where
0: I was going. It, yeah, it requires a lot of post-it notes and even the stuff about executive function to be able to explain to someone, no, you're... Your shoes go on after your pants or your underpants go on before your pants. Yeah, yeah. it's re—it's relearning everything that
1: you learn in like the first two years of life.
0: Yeah. The brain is, to me, incredibly fascinating in that we know virtually nothing about it really, or it's, it's and yet we know the stuff we know is fascinating, but it's just barely scratching the surface of what it's capable of, what it isn't capable of how the neuroplasticity works, just all of it. It's incredible. Yeah. One, one of the things I love about
1: Mark's film is
0: that the doctors
1: had said that he wasn't, really wasn't going to go anywhere. And he ended up so far ahead. His rehab physician actually came to the premiere screening and said he was blown away by where Mark landed. And I don't think, I do think it's unique to Mark in the sense that he is such a highly motivated Person, but I don't think it's unique to the human brain that it can continue to push through and change. And when people ask me, "Is is Mark going to be like this forever?" I always say no because I do believe that science and this knowledge of the brain is going to, over the next forty years, radically transform lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I always caveat that that by saying, "But I have to live on, you know, in my own life and." You know, continue to feel like I have uh, my own level of, of of a relationship with someone who, um, you know, has some short term memory.
0: <laughs> well, that's the beautiful thing about love, too, is that it is it is something that, as the as the Greeks knew, it had lots of different focal points. There's lots of different kinds, and what it means at any given time is malleable, right? That's a great way to think about it. And
1: your relationship with one person can change over time, as well as uh, just what you're you're looking for in love or how you you connect with people over time. For sure, I know that I've changed in what I value and uh, how I relate to people.
0: Yeah, that's, I think, fundamentally, it changes based on how you love yourself, which is the most important love there is, of course. Mm -hmm. In the show, uh, in the documentary, um, there was a moment where there was a mention of genetics and a twisted uh, artery. Do you worry about that with the kids? Have you had them checked? You're basically making me think I should worry about it. Oh no, (laughs) I'm sorry. That's like genetics. Trust me. My worst fear is a stroke. And when my brother had a stroke, I started panicking. I'm like, oh my God, he took massive amounts of cocaine in the day. Massive. I'm sure that did not help his brain at all. But I, it's, I was like, oh shit, oh shit. Is this genetic? So when he said that this genetic, weird genetic anomaly of the artery, I thought, oh, I wonder if the kids are
1: Yeah. So we should probably have them checked out and uh, it would probably be when they're a little bit older. Um, But this curly carotid artery is a, is a strange thing. And when you, when I went back and really asked the doctors, like, why, why did this happen to Mark there? They basically say like bad luck. Like it, like other, a lot of other people are probably walking around with the same carotid and just didn't have it happen to them. Yeah. So there is no rhyme or reason for where, where he got, where he is.
0: Life is so fleeting. It's very bizarre. I want to touch. I know. I don't want to keep you all day. I know you're a busy, busy woman, uh, but I want to touch on meditation and how that played a part. And then also in the documentary, the animation was quite lovely. The man going to the door, that part. I thought, wow, that's a very poignant moment. And I wondered, did that come directly? Was Mark able to articulate what it felt like to go into that mode, into the stroke and back out into where he is now?
1: Yeah. So he, he wanted the animation. And that was a big part of him as a director and writer and wanted that to be part of his film. I think he is not able to articulate that as a, as a concept but I think the film articulates that as a concept and Mm -hmm. that the, the artist drew from that story of, of how he came through. And Mark definitely doesn't sounds like a little bit like your brother doesn't remember so much that happened. And he was in the ICU for about three months. Um, I forget how long he was in the coma for, but it was months. And, so he missed, even when he went out of the ICU into rehab, he went back into the ICU two more times. So uh, he doesn't remember any of that. That's probably a mercy, really. I think it's a mercy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so one of, one of the things I, I've been joking with uh, Mark's uh, editor and the co producer, Alejandro, about is I want to make my own like 20 minute short film follow up to Mark's film. Great. <laughs> Uh, cause you know, there's my part of the story that I want to tell. Absolutely. But one of the things I think about meditation that I, I would say from my perspective is, um, when I was 26, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and um was was in a sort of a miserable time of my life. I think that's that age where you're no longer a college student partying, but you're still kind of partying, but you really need a job and and you have to be serious about work and you're in that transition. And I uh, at one point along the way, my brother's girlfriend introduced me to meditation. and she said, "You should read this book by Ekneth Eswarin. And I'm like, I'm not a self-help book person." she's like, this is about meditation and bought the book, read the book, changed my life. So now I am a poster child for (laughs) self-help books, but it was a book that that was taught Westerners how to meditate. So making it very American in a sense. And um, I always say that meditation really helped like changed my life and saved my life. And the fact that uh, I employed it in a way that really grounded me and um, gave me a place that uh, I don't know, centered my emotions, or lo- I don't want to say lowered my emotions, but allowed you when you were feeling anxiety or panic or confusion to go back to a meditative practice. And it's in that time when I met Mark, and Mark was meditating also, and we connected a lot over Sai Baba, who was Mark's spiritual uh, advisor, who's a guru in India. He and I traveled to India. We lived on the ashram in India together. And that meditation really, as a couple, just stayed with us for many, many, many years. And uh, it, when he went into the hospital and, and he was in this crazy coma state, that was just part of what I brought in, knowing that it was going to help him. And then when he finally got home, I think he also knew that that was something that was going to help him get through this. And I think for Mark, it's got to be even so much harder to sit with yourself and be (laughs) when you know what you used to be and and you know how much you've lost. So, uh, his own path of mourning, cause he had to mourn himself mm. and I don't even know how he did it. I, I, I couldn't even imagine I would still be angry <laughs> and he's actually not angry. Uh, but meditation provided him that foundation to accept himself and it, be in the present and accept the moment and, um, feel that he, he can be
0: who he is and be okay with it. Right. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of the idea that our body wants to work with us, not against us, and that we're in a world that is bombarding us with all sorts of things and creating a chaos that our body can fight against if we just listen to her, you know. Yeah. The the
1: ability to sit with yourself, I think is one of the hardest things we can do as people. Mm -hmm. And meditation's at the core of that, right?
0: Well, I think too people believe that meditation has to be sitting on a on a cushion with a piece of incense burning. And and meditation is all sorts of things. It's walking, it's eating, it's listening, it's looking. There's meditation all over the place and in everything you do with that mindset. Exactly. Yeah. I'm excited for all the things happening for you. What, what is, aside from the, the slime projects, is there any other things on the horizon for you? Are you writing a book? Are you going to do the, the short film? Uh, well, I am
1: writing a book and it's, uh, it's called It's More Complicated Than That, uh, in part because people are always asking me questions. And then I start to go down a road and I realize, like, it's it's way more complicated than that, you know. It's it, there's a lot there for for me, uh, and I I'm looking at it actually trying to bring in a lot of humor because along the way there's a lot of really funny things that happen and go on, and um, humor has helped me a lot with the pain and the the challenges. Um, so also wanting to tell tell my, tell my story. And I think the story of a, of small segment of, you know, women, women, moms, wives in their fifties, that story in a way that, that makes it really palatable and not, not too sad.
0: Yeah. I believe that there is a lot of hilarity and darkness. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to survive it. Right. That, that we have to be able to see those little moments of light in the darkness, but. I think that your story will certainly help anyone who maybe feels guilty or overwhelmed or unsure of a path. You seem very grounded to me, but you're also here and you're entitled to have moments where you just want to rip your hat and start screaming. Yeah. You get to be both those things. You get to be, you know, you get to be all the things. We sort of take those choices away from people, I think, because we assume we know what it must feel like. To be you, the right. royal you right,
1: yeah, and, uh, and now I, I'm not really on social media, and part of that is I feel like people are only showing that one side of them and not all the the dynamic pieces that aren't so pretty, and um the I, I like to embrace, I think it goes back to that gray area, the idea that, you know, we're not always happy. We don't have perfect families, uh, nothing, nothing, actually nothing is lined up and in the right order. We're all just trying to figure
0: it out as we go along. Yeah. But the gray area is the best part. I think I always say, I look at, you know, when concrete, when you see a little piece, like a flower poking up or a weed or, or whatever, poking up through the concrete. And I think, yeah, that's a perfect metaphor hmm yes the weed yeah and then a weed too a weed is just a flower you don't like <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that <laughs> sarah you're great and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me i really appreciate it this has been quite the journey i recommend everyone go and watch the documentary no bone scars of survival it's excellent and the no bone comes from, of course, the fact that they have to remove your skull so that your brain can breathe a little. It happened to my brother as well. Yeah, yeah they they have to take that that compartment off. Did it's... they put it in his belly too? They did. It. So he went in. He had a, at the same time he had a stroke. He had a massive sinus infection, and so they removed his skull and they put it in a freezer. And they didn't realize that the infection had gotten into the bone. And so when they took it out of the freezer, it was completely gone. It was dead black. So he now has a plastic. Well, it's not really plastic, but it's whatever the human that, you know, they mix the stuff and they make you a a fake skull. So he has that. So he has his
1: own scars of survival.
0: He does. He does. Don't we all though? Don't we all? Yeah, I, I think there's something to be proud of
1: with those scars. That's that shows you're living.
0: Absolutely. And sometimes you can't see them. Sometimes they're on the inside, but they're no no less important to honor them. Uh well, there's a great way for people to find you out there in the world. If you want to have a lot of
1: fun, the place to go is the Slumo Institute Instagram and TikTok feeds. Has, I think we have 1.7 million TikTok followers. Oh, and a couple hundred thousand Instagram followers. There are so many funny and joyous pieces of, of love on there that people can go down a, a great rabbit hole and, and it will brighten up your day for many of the other things that are out there.
0: Oh, I love it. I'll put links to that and to the movie and all that on uh, HeyHumanPodcast.com. So it's really easy for everyone to find as awesome. well. Yeah,
1: well, Thank I've enjoyed. I, I've been going all back and forth and up and down on the on the podcast. So I just did the one. Is it
0: Buck the yeah the, Buck Angel? Yeah, Buck Angel. That was awesome. Yeah, interesting guy. Yeah, interesting guy. Yeah, there's so many fascinating humans in the world. It's gonna take some time, but eventually I'll get to all of them. You'll get to all <laughs> of them. I'm sure. So glad you connected. Me too. And if I'm ever in New York, I'll look you up. Uh, I would love Me to meet too. you in person. Yeah. Well, and you have to come to Slumu. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm coming. Yeah. I can't wait. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Awesome. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you. you. Too. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.